Morning, church family. Um, as I was looking at my calendar a year ago, almost a year ago, June 11th, to this date, uh, we preached. I, I got a chance to preach on Nicodemus out of John chapter 3. And today, Nicodemus shows up in John chapter 7. So I'm so grateful. Thank you for the opportunity to preach God's word. What a privilege. And God is so good. So let's pray as we get ready to hear God's word preached. Father, we thank you for this time to preach your word. May your word be preached with power and conviction. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we will love your son more and become more like him. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be out of John chapter 7 again, and we're going to be backtrack a few verses to 37. We're going to end up at 52. So let's rise if you can as we read God's word and a little bit of context. Last time we ended up with Jesus giving a gospel invitation at the temple site. He said, come to me who are thirsty and drink. Okay, now today we're going to see the reaction to that gospel invitation. Okay, so this is John chapter 7, verse 37, to give us a little more richer context from last week. Verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, the Feast of Booths, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke of the spirit whom uh, those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's our text for today, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to uh, come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village, of, village where David was? Verse 43, for a division occurred in the crowd because of him. A division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. They don't know any better. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is truth. Holy Spirit, open our hearts to hear from you so that we will love Jesus more and become more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Okay, verse 40 starts off this way. You know the context. Jesus preached, gave a gospel invitation at the temple site. Verse 40, some of the people, therefore. So therefore is response to the invitation by Christ. And they are not responding to a miracle or a sign given by Christ. They're responding to his word. Okay, and then they said, this could, could this be the prophet? Now, what is the prophet here? 
What does the crowd mean when they said, could this be the prophet? Now, keep in mind, this was the Feast of Booths, like we talked about last week. And the Feast of Booths was to commemorate the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness as, before the Israelites entered into the Promised Land. Well, there were a lot of miracles that took place in that wilderness. And one of the miracles that they commemorated was the water that came out of the rock, miraculously. Or Moses struck the rock and water came out to uh, keep the Israelites alive. So the people had this picture of Moses in their mind as, G- as they're speaking. Is, could this be the prophet? Well, Deuteronomy 18.15 says this. God says a prophet like Moses is going to come, come someday. So this is a, a, a prophetic thing that they're talking about. Could this be, could Jesus be the fulfillment of this prophet? Like Moses, Moses was a deliverer. deliverer. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. Acts 30, uh, 3.22, Peter confirms that Jesus is this prophet, if you want to read on, on your own, in Acts 3.22. Uh, but how is Jesus like Moses? Here's some reasons, here's some thoughts that, uh, that I've been able to kind of jot down here. Both King Pharaoh, or the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and King Herod tried to kill the babies. When Moses was born and when Jesus was born in their respective times, those rulers, those evil rulers, tried to eliminate those babies. They survived that. Both gave up their uh, royal courts. Jesus left the heavenly courts to come to earth. Moses left the Egyptian royal courts Both had compassion for their people. Both performed miracles. Both interceded for the people. They prayed for the people. They prayed to the Father on behalf of the people. Both mediated a covenant, a promise from God. Moses' covenant, the Mosaic covenant, centered more around the law. Or Jesus, the new covenant, he is the fulfillment of the law. So they have some similarities. So Moses is a type of Christ. So as you study the Old Testament, there's these types, these figures, these moments that kind of foreshadow Christ. And Moses is that. In verse 41 here, there's another opinion. So some people think, could this be the prophet? Verse 41, others were saying, this is the Christ. This is another uh, opinion. The Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. Now, just to get into the mind of the Jews at the time, were they thinking the Christ is a political Messiah? You know, oftentimes I know we talk about that in our sermons. So what are they, what's going on in their hearts and minds of the people here? I believe that they acknowledge this Christ in this instance as the saving Messiah. Not just a political Messiah. Why? Jesus, now in, in context, think about it. Jesus got done giving a gospel invitation. He says in verse 38 here of, of chapter 7, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about living water here. He's not talking about liberating Israel from Rome or anything like that. So the context is here. This is, I'm, I'm here to give you life eternal. So they're not, he's not talking about a, a political liberation. So I believe the Jews are thinking, could this be the Savior of the world, the Messiah that we've been hoping for? Now, there's two things that we're talking about here. The prophet, like Moses, the prophet, and the Christ. So are they the one and the same? Okay, are they the one and the same person? Well, as New Testament people as we are, looking backwards, looking at the Scriptures, we can see that Jesus certainly fulfills 
the, the, the prophecy of being the prophet. And he's, we know he is the Christ. He's the Savior. They're one and the same. However, how did the Jews of this time view the prophet and the Christ? I believe they saw them as separate offices, offices separate people, two separate people. Why do I think this? Well, going back to John 1.25, the religious rulers uh, questioned John the Baptist as he's baptizing people, and this is what they say. They asked him, the religious rulers are asking John the Baptist, and said to him, why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, so there's one person, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. They're separate in their minds, I believe. Now, so people are thinking, could this be the prophet? Could Jesus be the prophet? Could Jesus be the Christ? And the third choice here is this, of doubt. Still others are saying in verse 41, second half, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? There's this arrogant response and this bias that the southerners, the people in Jerusalem, the religious rulers had towards the people of Galilee. Okay, there's this bias that shows that in verse 42, They've even proved themselves of not knowing what they're talking about. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David? And from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They were right on that point. Prophetically, the Messiah would be come from the line of David, the family line of David, King David we're talking about, and would be born from Bethlehem. They thought Jesus was from Galilee. They, they completely missed the point. Well, 2 Samuel 7.16 is the Davidic covenant. God tells David that there will be someone to sit on your throne forever. This is Jesus. Jesus sits on the throne forever. And Jesus is from the line of David. Matthew 1 and Luke 3, there's genealogies in, in the Gospels. And they both confirm that Jesus is from the Davidic line. In Micah 5.2, Old Testament prophecy. So the whole Bible is about Jesus, as you can see. But as for you, Bethlehem, it says the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. What is this ruler going to be like? His going forth are coming from long ago, from the days of eternity. This ruler will be eternal. That's only God himself could fit that description. That's Jesus. And sure enough, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They missed it. These religious rulers were so arrogant, spiritually arrogant. They had knowledge, but they were arrogant. They completely missed the point of who Jesus was. Now, verse 43, we're going to camp out here for a little bit here. Verse 43, so a division or schism occurred in the crowd because of him. Because of who? Jesus. Jesus divides the people. And in history, no one in the history of, of, of our world has been more polarizing than Jesus. Absolutely no one. Where you land on who Jesus is will either put you on Jesus' team or some other team. There's only two teams in the history of the world. Team Jesus the team that is saved, and there's everybody else, those who are against Jesus. And there's tension 2,000 years ago in this temple site between the people. Luke 12, 51, Jesus said he came to divide. And this is exactly what's happening here. And I believe this division is absolutely alive today in our culture. 
this politically correct culture which pushes universalism is absolutely alive. I believe this whole attempt of everyone's belief system being valid is a satanic attempt to blur the lines. Absolutely satanic. To take the edge off of who Christ is, to lessen the division, to bring people together. While veneered with the idea of unity and peace, this is a satanic thing to deceive many people. I mean, you've seen it as we drive around the freeway, driving around the 626, you know, you've seen people with their coexist stickers on as if this is some kind of, uh, we should be tolerant and accept all beliefs as being valid and true. You've seen those stickers. Well, this is graduation time, and during graduation time, you know, there's this thing called the baccalaureate, right? I don't know if everyone knows this. I didn't have one of those growing, uh, going to Arcadia High School, but a baccalaureate is basically what started off as a Christian service to bless the graduates, whether it's high school or college, whatever. And I've had a chance to speak at some of these, and whether here in California or up in Washington, and one baccalaureate comes to mind. You know, this was a very prominent high school that asked me to speak. And, you know, it's amazing the places that you go to as long as, long as you coach football for the Seahawks in Seattle. You know, <laughs> let us go anywhere and speak on anything you want. So I'm like, all right. So they asked me to come. And I said, um, you realize I'm a Christian. You know, I love Jesus. And the talk's going to be a very Jesus-centered talk. And probably we're going to talk about the gospel. Is that Okay. Oh, that's fine. Just come. Okay, I said, all right. Full disclosure. This is what we're going, we're going there. So I said, okay. So this, this event was at a solid Christian church. I know the pastor. I know people that go to the church. It was held at a, a solid Christian church. But, I, you know, I, I get there. I'm sitting near the front. And um, this man comes up. And he identifies himself as an Episcopalian priest. And he starts leading the group or the, the, the service. He goes, let's pray or let's meditate to whoever you consider to be God or to a higher power. Let's just focus in on that being and gets into some weird talk. You know what I mean? And I'm just sitting there. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, do they realize what I'm going to say here in a few moments? <laughs> I mean, this school is filled with parents who are like accomplished. I mean, worldwide uh, corporations that you definitely will recognize. This is that school. This is their children, highly accomplished people. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm kind of starting to second guess. Maybe I could kind of soften a little bit, and give a little more football, a little, you know, kind of back off a little bit. But there's a point in this kind of this quasi-prayer that, you know, I get irked, you know, and I, there's an ire within me. I started to get mad, like, what is this? Why am I getting intimidated by this? We're going to talk about what God called me to talk on today. And so, anyway, we end up talking about Christ and the gospel, and it's interesting, the people in the audience, like you, know, you could tell some people were bothered. Some people were not happy. But the Christians in the group, well, thank you for being bold. Thank you for talking about Christ, right? It's like, all right. But you can see where the culture has hijacked even some Christian events, Christian uh, things, and made it their own. This is satanic. This is what Satan wants to do, just dilute it all so it's all good. And we know the truth on this. And the big question here, as there's a great division here in the temples, who is Jesus? That's what's dividing. If you side with he's as the Messiah, as the Christ, you're on one side. Everybody else is on the other side with different opinions. 
And being in, in pro football and college football, I've had opportunities with teammates, players, uh, fellow coaches, other people that I've met who had different backgrounds. And you understand what I'm talking about. And I'm in professional ministry now, but before that, we're in the secular. And most of you guys are in the secular. I mean, I, we ha I've had atheist friends who acknowledge Christ as a, a good man, a historical figure. Okay, in some ways they honor him in that way. The New Agers, they, they believe that Jesus has achieved the highest level enlightenment of, or of knowing. Those are the terms that they would use. The secular Jews, friends that I have, would say he was a good man. You know, as I went to Israel, the Orthodox Jews, they'll say he was a blasphemer. A man who claimed to be God who wasn't God. This is a, that's their opinion. My Muslim friends would say, we honor Jesus. We believe in Jesus too. We believe he's a mighty prophet. A man, but a prophet who, speak, who spoke for God. My Jehovah's Witness friends will say he's a God. They'll change the, John 1.1 1, 1 and, and call him a God. He's God's first creation. Not God the creator, but the first created one. My Mormon friends will say he's a created son of God. They'll call him the son of God. See how things get a little murkier? It's like guerrilla warfare. You know, the colors of the teams are changing a little bit. It looks a little bit more similar. Mormons, according to uh, Norman Geisler, an apologist, he says, the Mormon Christ is the brother of Lucifer and the result of sexual union between God who had, has a physical body and Mary. This is the Christ that they, say, they claim. So we as Christians, we have to be clear. Who is Jesus? Let's go to the text. John 1.1, 1, 1, the same author who wrote John chapter 7 says this. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. In verse 14, we skip down, He tells us exactly who this Word is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, Here, here's Paul, another writer of the New Testament. Okay, it's Colossians 2, 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. For in him, that's Jesus, him is Jesus. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is God in the flesh. In no unclear terms, the Bible identifies Jesus as God in the flesh, the God-man. He is God himself. If that's all we get from the message, remember that Jesus is God. And th this is why it divides. This is what divides our culture wants us to kind of morph in with everybody else and make every other belief system valid. But this is knowing this, being dogmatic about this, because this is not our words, but this is the word of God. This is what divides. Now, verse 46 here. The officers answered, answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Now, see, these, there were temple guards that were sent out to go arrest Jesus. And they come back, you know, empty-handed from the, the uh, Feast of Booths. And they, the, the, the religious rulers and the Pharisees say, where is Jesus? Why didn't you arrest him? This is the answer they give. Because never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. When confronted with the rulers, they point to the authority of Jesus' word. 
Now, it's important to give us a little bit more context. Who are these temple guards? Who are these temple officials? These are Levites. These are from the priestly line. They understand Old Testament Bible. These are well-learned, well-studied people. So when Christ was preaching at the temple, their heart must have been pricked. They must have been torn apart. We're supposed to arrest this guy? He's speaking truth. We can't arrest this man. There's another, there's a subtle affirmation of who Christ is without them even seeing it. Now, verse 50 here. This is where Nicodemus enters into the stage again. A year ago, we preached on Nicodemus, so I was kind of fired up to see this. Wow. Here's Nicodemus again. Verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before at night, chapter 3. He's the one that came, chapter 3. Being one of them. Being one of them means he's one of the Pharisees, one of the religious rulers, chief teacher, said to them. He says to his own comrades. What does he say? Verse 15. Our law does not judge a man unless, what? Unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? Nicodemus must have been gripped at the heart. Because in John 3, this is where Jesus said, you have to be born again, again of the Spirit. You have to have a spiritual rebirth. And Nicodemus must have been processing this. I don't know if Nicodemus was a believer at the time or he's on, on his way. But he heard Jesus' gospel invitation. He heard Jesus' altar call at the temple. He said, come, all those who are thirsty, come to me and drink. Nicodemus what does he say to his comrades here? His unbelieving, arrogant comrades here. G- Nicodemus in vi- verse 51 says this. He just says, hear Jesus out. Give him a chance. Let's hear him out before we seek to arrest him and kill him. Hear him out. He defends Jesus. Now, I got a question for us here. What would you do if you were Nicodemus in the temple? in the hornet's nest, right there at the capital of all the religious rulers and the Pharisees. What would you do if you're Nicodemus? Would you keep quiet? What would you do? I believe where all of us are in this situation. You know, as I'm reminded of my old life, I was constantly in that situation. All of, many of us go to schools. Many of us are in college. Some of us are looking for work as you graduate out of college. Many of us are in jobs. Many of us have our workout gyms, our teams that we play on. We have our community groups that we're a part of outside of this church. And all of us have an opportunity to be Nicodemus. What will we do in that situation? And I just, these thoughts kind of came to mind as I was thinking about my time as, as a football coach and as a football player, maybe over the last 30 years. How do we navigate in the secular? Let's have a plan. Let's have a clear thought on how we do this. The first thought that came up is this. Have the right heart as you view people. Okay? Pray to have the Father's heart. What is the Father's heart here? 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says this. This is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, what is the Father's heart? Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When we see our coworkers at work, even some of our vile co-workers, no morality, may even be mocking of Christ because they know that you are a Christian. What is in your heart? 
towards them. Yes, I think naturally there should be some kind of ire that they dishonor Christ without question. But are you hoping and praying that this person comes to Christ as their Lord and Savior? We have to have the right compassion. Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Remember, Jesus in, in, in the temple just moments ago just gave a gospel invitation, an altar call. He cared for these people. Do we have the heart of Christ as we interact with the people that God has allowed us to interact with? Remember this. This might help. This thought might help. The unbeliever is not the enemy. The atheist friend, the, the Mormon friend, the Muslim friend is not the enemy. Maybe if some of their teaching is the, of the enemy, certainly, but they're not the enemy. Rather, they are the mission field. Brothers and sisters, this is who we're called to minister. Before I became a professional minister, I was a minister in football. Whoever God put in front of me was an opportunity to minister. Where has God placed you to be a minister? Point two, look to understand your people. Being in football, there weren't many Asians around, okay? <laughs> I got to tell you that much. Okay, whether it's pro football or college football at the University of Southern California, there were not many Asians around, okay? So being in the minority, it kind of forces you to be in the posture of understanding others. So as I come to church here as a pastor, my posture has been trying to, okay, can I hear people out? Where are they at? Let me try to help understand. Whether I agree or not, that's a different story. But I'm trying to understand. And, and, and as Christians, we are ambassadors in a foreign land. We are, once we leave this, this building, we're minorities wherever we sit. Our posture should be to understand and know the people that God puts in front of us. What do I mean by that? What do these people believe? What do they believe? What is their belief system? Are they open to hearing the truth of the gospel of who Christ is? Are, there, are you learning entryways into their heart how you could speak about the gospel? What's, what's near and dear to these people? Family, work, sports even? You, you redeem anything. What can you talk about to bridge the gap? This is something we need to be, keep studying, keep watching the people around us. Do you actually have a relationship with the lost at work in the community? Because relationship is the bridge that allows you to speak truth, gospel-giving, life-giving truth into the heart of somebody else. Thirdly, be true to the Lord. It may be hard. I mean, look what happens. Nicodemus is trying to be true to the Lord in his way, in this moment. And look how they respond in verse 52. They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? This is an arrogant, condescending remark towards Nicodemus. Nicodemus takes a shot right here from his comrades. So if you are to speak and out for Christ and be true to the Lord, it may cost you. It may cost you. I mean, it may cost you your job. It may cost you promotion. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you discomfort minimally. It may cost you, and, and I think it probably will cost you in some degree. Listen here. This is, here's a word of encouragement. I know this is not an easy thing, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're confronted with this every day. We get to be Nicodemuses every day. Here's a word of encouragement, though. I believe 
the more authentic you are, if you are a follower of Christ and you speak truthfully in love, I believe they will respect you. Whether they agree with you or not, that's a whole different ballgame. But they will respect you because people are looking for real today. Just like we have this universalistic mentality or relativistic mentality of it's, it's all good, we all inherently know it can't be all good. We all cannot be right. We know this, but we're kind of playing the game. So when you speak the truth in love, I believe they will respect you. You want to be real. This is what we're talking about. John 14, 6, Jesus clearly says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, exclusive claim, no one comes to the Father but through me. Are you ready to preach the good news? Are you ready to be true to the Lord? And how about this? We proclaim, no question, we proclaim an exclusive gospel. And we proclaim an exclusive Christ in an inclusive age. This is the age that we live in. This is the age that we live in. We want everyone to be inclusive, but we are very exclusive because the Bible is exclusive. Now, verse 52, you can see the spirit of where the Pharisees were at. They were arrogant, which, which caused them to be blind, spiritually blind. They hated Jesus. They hated Jesus, and no matter what they saw in the law, in the Old Testament, no matter what, how they studied into Moses, no matter how they looked into the Feast of Booths, they were incapable of seeing who Christ was. They were absolutely arrogant, and they, they, that arrogance cost them dearly. Their hearts were hardened. Now let's zero in on Nicodemus, okay? God had it that we talked about him a year ago. Here he is again. Nicodemus was humble, therefore he heard him. John brought Nicodemus into the discussion for a distinct purpose, I believe. Okay, Nicodemus was there hearing this passionate uh, uh, invitation by Christ, right? He must have been stirred. He must have been moved to pieces as he could recall. I remember that night Jesus was talking to me, but I, I got to be reborn. And I came to him, and I, he must have been thinking this. Perhaps right now you could recall certain conversations that maybe your parents have had with you or some of your best friends have had with you about Christ, and you know you're not a Christian right now. Perhaps those pieces are being stirred up in your hearts right now. Perhaps the Spirit of God is blowing upon you right now. You must be reborn. Chapter 3, John. Not just a physical rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth. Now, what happened to Nicodemus? Now, Nick, I believe Nicodemus shows fruit right here. He's showing courage in the face of, he's right in the hornet's nest with a bunch of hornets swarming around him. He's, he's, defend, he's doing his best to defend Christ. But look at this here, John 19, okay? John 19, 39 and 40. If it was intense back then on John chapter 7 at the, at the temple during the Feast of Booths, it gets that much more intense. Jesus has been murdered. He's been hung on the cross. He, he's killed. They're hunting down for his disciples. His disciples have fled. Judas is going to hang himself pretty soon. Peter is absolutely depressed. And look what Nicodemus does. In the hardest and the most intense of times by the Spirit of God, Nicodemus, verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, John chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of weight. So they took, who's they? Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. 
to religious rulers. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial customs of the Jews. Nicodemus shows up in the most intensive times. And I believe the Spirit of God was just flowing through him like living water. Perhaps in this moment, in John chapter 7, perhaps that's when the water started gushing out of him as he attempted to defend Jesus. Maybe it was a trickle at that moment. Maybe it was like the L.A. River like we talked about last. Maybe it was just a trickle. Perhaps it's all, you, all you see in your life is but a trickle. But look what God does in John chapter 9. He is able to say, I want this body. He's my Lord. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to honor him. You don't think everyone was watching? Everyone was watching. He, he, he wanted, you want a platform? Everyone was watching that moment. Water was flowing through this brother like none other in that moment by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now it's important as we, what, what can we take from this? Who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh in no unclear terms. But as Christ followers, we need to have a humble attitude like Nicodemus. We cannot be like the Pharisees who were absolutely arrogant that blinded them. Nicodemus was humbled, he was ready to hear, and he was humble in how he engaged the Pharisees, how he engaged his comrades. He just said, why don't we hear him out? Hear him out first before you seek to arrest him and kill him. I believe that every one of us who are in the secular, are, you, got, you are in a treasured position, absolutely treasured position. I, I, I exhort you to steward it well. God placed Nicodemus in the hornet's nest for a reason. He had him there, right there for a reason. 2,000 years later, he's encouraging us to this day through the life of Nicodemus. I kind of broke down during this time, and like it, a couple of the pastors asked me, are you okay? And I just, the reason why it's emotional for me is that that was a treasure time in my life. I love these men that I got to be with. <clears throat> I, just, I desire for us to steward this well. And the reason why we come here to be part of the majority on Sundays, it's like a, it's, this is not game time, guys. This isn't. This is about meeting. I get to give a talk. I get to teach and preach the Bible, which I'm so thankful for. The game time is when we say, ready, break. You guys leave and get to the San Gabriel Valley. And you start evangelizing, discipling the saints out there. That's game time. Game time is at home with your children and your wives, brothers. At work. It's interesting. We've been talking about evangelizing and changing the SGV with the power of the gospel. That's game time. We get to be in the game. And I just love this example of Nicodemus flowing of living waters, flying out of this man. This is what we're called to do. We're big fire hydrant squirting everyone around us, right? This is what we do. Not on our own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how it works. So let me just pray for us as we go into this time. This is a treasure time. This is a great time. This is the time. This is why you study the Bible. This is why we get together at church to encourage one another so that you can step into the arena like Nicodemus did. You got your own hornet's nest. We understand that. Spirit-led, let's look to evangelize the lost and disciple the saints 
in your arena. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the life of Nicodemus. Thank you for the grace that you've shown this man. Thank you that, Jesus, you are so bold. There's nobody like you. That you will proclaim the truth of who you are and give a gospel invitation to the lost, to the darkness in the temple at that time. Father, I pray for the saints in here that they, we will be on fire for you, just gushing waters, empowered by the Holy Spirit to the dead in the San Gabriel Valley. God, I pray we will have ma maximum joy in loving and serving you, Lord. So give us your heart, Father, that we will love the lost. We will see them as the mission field, not the enemy. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.